With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Caixin Syndicate Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Cynical Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. Industries struggle to cope with the coronavirus-induced economic slowdown, top Hubei officials get ousted, and the government takeover of private charity donations causes a stir. Ada, start us off on the latest general developments with the epidemic. Kaiser, China last week broadened the way it classifies confirmed cases of the virus, causing the total number of people infected to skyrocket. New daily cases have since begun to decline, but the jump spooked markets and has health experts dealing with a growing list of questions, among those the reliability of the data Beijing has been providing. Numerous foreign countries have extended their travel bans on people coming from China, and analysts have said the impact to both the Chinese and global economies could be worse than expected. Meanwhile, cities within China, including Beijing, implemented or tightened varying degrees of lockdowns of their residents. But epidemiologists caution that there are still too many unknowns and the fate of the outbreak is unclear. It could gradually die out over the coming months, it could explode and become a global pandemic, or it could dwindle but become an annually recurring seasonal infection, among other possible scenarios. Speaking of the epidemic's effects worldwide, analysts are revising down their forecasts for global growth this year with expectations particularly negative for tourism, trade, and other economic activity across Asia. Travel has been particularly hard hit in China and Thailand, as many countries in the region, including Japan, Malaysia, and Singapore, have reduced or suspended air travel to and from mainland China. Likewise, economies across Asia have become much more dependent on Chinese tourism. Mainland residents accounted for about 80% of all visitors to Hong Kong, and more than 30% to Cambodia, South Korea, and Vietnam. About 30% of visitors to Thailand and Japan in 2018 were also from mainland China. By comparison, in 2002, before the SARS outbreak, Chinese travelers accounted for only 40% of visitors to Hong Kong and fewer to 10% to the rest of the region. Tourism isn't the only sector feeling the pain. Delays in reopening factories in China after the Lunar New Year holiday are hurting global supply chains, especially for the technology, electronics, and auto industries, with Singapore, South Korea, and Japan the most severely affected. 
in a formidable campaign across China to discipline officials who have mishandled the coronavirus outbreak, Beijing has removed and replaced two top party heads in Hubei province, the epicenter of the crisis. Jiang Chaoliang, party chief of Hubei, has been replaced by Shanghai's mayor Ying Yong. Meanwhile, Ma Guoqiang, party chief of Wuhan, Hubei's capital, has been succeeded by Wang Zhonglin, a party secretary from Shandong province. Hubei authorities have been fiercely criticized for not having responded to the deadly virus in the early stage of the outbreak, and the reshuffling comes the day after the spike in new cases under revised diagnostic criteria. Ying Yong, the ex-Shanghai mayor, is a close ally of President Xi Jinping, a bond formed when the two men served in top positions in Zhejiang province earlier in their careers. More than 1,700 medical workers on the front lines of the epidemic have become infected, mostly in Wuhan. Six have died. The figures were disclosed Friday by China's National Health Commission, which said they were current as of Tuesday. It's the first time China has released an official count of infections among healthcare workers. Among the six dead are Li Wenliang, the doctor who sounded an early alarm about the human spread of the virus before the information was made public, and who was punished by authorities for doing so. His death last week sparked an outpouring of grief and anger in China and abroad. The disclosure from China's top health authority follows its release of new guidelines intended to improve the working conditions and physical and mental health of frontline medical staff. For some, they have come too late. Health workers in Wuhan were among the first to care for patients with the new disease before there was official recognition that it was being transmitted between people. Wuhan's municipal health committee released an internal notice on treating cases of unknown pneumonia on December 30th. It emphasized two things: strict reporting of information back up the chain and no unauthorized disclosures. Doctors in Wuhan have told Caixin how the large number of medical staff contracting the disease has created cross infections in hospitals and battered morale. You can check out episode 110 of the podcast to hear an interview on the difficulties healthcare workers face in China. In non-coronavirus news, the former head of the China Development Bank has been arrested in one of the most notable anti-corruption cases in China's financial sector in years. The arrest of Hu Huaibang comes six months after the veteran banker was placed under investigation for taking bribes. Hu retired from his position as CDB chairman in September 2018 after working there for five years. During his tenure, he used his position to help two former high-flying giants, CEFC China Energy and HNA Group, obtain billions of dollars in dubious credit that helped fuel their meteoric rises. Caixin previously reported. Both companies themselves have since come under regulatory investigation. The state-run development bank was established in 1994 to fund China's massive infrastructure and energy projects. It is one of the country's biggest lenders and is under direct jurisdiction of the State Council, China's cabinet. Xiaomi is pushing the envelope with the launch of a new series of smartphones with some of its highest prices ever, aiming to move further into the higher-margin premium market dominated by Apple and Samsung. The company's new Mi 10 series phones will start at 570 U.S. dollars and go up to 900 U.S. dollars. That starting price is 145 dollars more than that of the previous model, the Mi 9. Last year's rollout of the Mi 9 came as Xiaomi said it was spinning off of its new low-cost Redmi brand as part of an effort to shed its image as a low-end smartphone maker. 
While the company wants consumers to think of its phones as high-tech and cutting-edge, the vast majority of its sales come from low-end models. Such phones have helped make Xiaomi a favorite in developing markets like India, but are also famous for their thin profit margins due to stiff competition. The Mi 10 phones, now only available in China, will help Xiaomi target a domestic market currently dominated by Apple and homegrown rival Huawei. Xiaomi's push into the higher end comes as sales are falling in the important home market. Last year, the company's China shipments fell 20%, while Huawei's surged 35%. Its woes at home caused Xiaomi's stock to sink to an all-time low last year as investors worried about the loss of share in its most important market. But the stock has bounced back by more than 50% since then as investors gain more confidence in its global strategy. Thanks, Ada. Let's turn now to Tanner Brown of Caixin, co-producer of this program. Tanner, hope you're well there. Sucks to be in Chengdu and not have all the restaurants open to you, but hey. Anyway, I understand you are going to tell us about some specific economic impacts in China of the COVID-19, the coronavirus. Right. Well, Kaiser, as over the last almost two months now, as Chinese policymakers and leaders gradually came to understand how severe the epidemic was, the coronavirus epidemic, and the threat that it could pose to economic growth and health in a number of sectors, they rolled out a ton of, of various financial and monetary policies to try to make sure production would continue, that companies would stay healthy, that banks' balance sheets would be okay, etc., there are concerns for a number of areas in the economy. Obviously, manufacturing has come to largely a standstill. Tourism has been hit hard both in China and regionally. Related to that would obviously be the airline industry taking a huge hit. And what we'll discuss later, though, is a sort of more vulnerable sector, perhaps are what are called small and medium enterprises, medium-sized enterprises. Basically, these, not necessarily mom and pop firms, but these are not big firms. And they could be in a number of sectors, but what classifies them here is that they just don't have huge capitalization. They're probably not public companies. They're small. They often rely on bank loans, etc. And they really can't afford to have such a powerful financial blow that is currently taking place because of the virus. So we'll get into that. But to go back to what I was saying, as policymakers had begun to implement all these measures, there is the big debate in the analyst community and financial community about whether it would work, these injection of liquidity. That debate started to matter less you know, a week or two ago when it appeared that the virus was coming under control, new daily case numbers were dropping pretty steadily. And it seemed that the argument was kind of moot because things were coming under control. And then, you know, sort of abruptly, almost overnight, Beijing just revised how they classify confirmed cases of the coronavirus. They no longer just relied on those testing kits, but could rely on imaging or symptomatic diagnosis. So the number of confirmed cases skyrocketed overnight. It, it grew about 40%. And what I'm getting at is the it reignited fears that the epidemic was not under control, that it was bigger than we thought. You know, that's the healthcare side. So there are concerns about that from a public health standpoint, but it sort of brought back to the forefront, the argument about what this is going to do to the economy and the economic policy measures Beijing has put in place, what those are and are they going to work? 
So this got analysts talking, some of them revising their numbers down for prospects for China's economy. It had markets around the world pretty worried. It didn't help that basically a couple of hours after these uh, virus case numbers spiked, Beijing went in and, and basically fired the top leader in Hubei province and in Wuhan at ground zero of the, of the virus epidemic. So you basically saw that we had case numbers spiking. We had signs that at least the central government leadership had didn't have confidence in what was going on on the ground there. So we went from what was a pretty optimistic trend in the virus to one that kind of reignited concerns. So that's the background. Uh, but you wanted to talk specifically about debt and its impact on small and medium enterprises in China. Is that right? Uh, what is China doing to try to abate the impact of this epidemic on smaller borrowers. Yeah. So one area that came back to the forefront was local debt. And basically the reason why was that we saw last week uh, numerous regional governments like in Shanghai and in Zhejiang and, and on and on and have directed smaller banks in their areas to have a higher threshold for tolerating bad loans or what can sometimes be called non-performing loans in the hopes that this will keep a lot of small and medium-sized companies from collapsing. So it's basically telling banks, well, you might have had a loan that was due to be repaid next week by this small company. They're not going to be able to repay that. You need to give them some breathing room. And, you know, there is a lot of concern about the health of these smaller companies. A, a survey that Peking University and Tsinghua University jointly conducted a couple of weeks ago found that they interviewed about a thousand such companies, small and medium-sized companies. And a third of those companies said they could not survive one month under the current conditions, which is basically that no money's coming in because of the economic standstill. So a third of the companies would go under after a month if they don't get some help. An additional third would crumble after two months. And then there was another like about 20% that said they could last three months. So about 85%, a vast majority of small and medium-sized enterprises in China said that they would collapse within three months or less if they didn't have either a resumption of economic activity or financial injections of some sort, bank loans, or a reprieve and some breathing room from these lenders. I think it's just astounding that so many firms are at risk. And so this is what prompted policymakers to direct these banks to, hey, we're going to need to back off some of these firms. And Tanner, this obviously is having a huge impact, and that's bad enough. But with this particular patient, the Chinese economy, there were already some underlying conditions, as it were, uh, comorbidities, to take this metaphor a little too far. Exactly, Kaiser. In normal economic times, say the economy was just doing just fine, and this crisis comes along, and policymakers ask these banks to sort of back off and help out these these smaller firms for a while, that may have been no big deal or may have worked or it may not have caused a debate uh, among economists. But this is a really bad time for the coronavirus to be impacting China's economy. China's economy is growing at a 30-year low, barely 6%. Last year it grew at, at barely 6%. And analysts are now saying in the first quarter of 2020, it could, because of the coronavirus, could fall to anywhere between 1% to 5%. 
And of course, you know, you still have the effects of the trade war. So you have all these macroeconomic problems that were already existing, just as sort of a bad time for an additional economic problem, such as the coronavirus, to come in and put a standstill to production and activity in a number of sectors. But probably the most painful thing for these banks when they're being asked to give breathing room to these companies is that there already was years-long debt problems in China, especially at the local level among these type of banks. I don't know if you recall, but there was liquidity crunch and a couple small banks either were going to go under or had to be taken over by the government. Uh, there were bank runs because at the local level, there there were long-running debt problems. You know, there's unregulated off-the-books shadow banking where banks sort of hide some of the lending they're doing. So we already saw that debt was bad, but it's probably worse than is even measurable because things like these shadow banking and un unregulated lending. And now, amidst all this, you have policymakers asking these lenders to step up to the plate and help these firms. So that sounds pretty grim, but will these policies now being introduced, this this easing, uh, this order to tolerate NPLs and this directed lending by small banks, is it going to be enough to prevent a big die-off of, of SMEs? That, that really is the question. And we talked to several analysts that had varying opinions on this. We talked to some even Chinese establishment analysts, so like a former head of um, Zhejiang's biggest bank. He was skeptical about these the government telling these small banks to tolerate bad loans. He thought it was unhealthy for the small companies themselves. Maybe they need to go under if they're not able to survive. And he thought it's obviously bad for the banks themselves because they're going to rack up debt themselves and they're not getting repaid and their balance sheets are going to suffer. But we talked to other analysts that felt that it's obviously not a great situation, but they may get through it and you may see some problems on the bank side and some problems on the the firm's side. Which So the problems on the bank side could be a couple smaller lenders may go under because they're not getting repaid the money that they need to survive themselves. We may see something like consolidation. So you might see some of China's really big banks absorb some of these smaller lenders, buy them out, you know, at sort of a bargain rate. And then you may see some of the really more vulnerable smaller companies go under, but maybe not them going under in mass. So that's going to be a wait and see, and it's going to depend on how long the economic standstill goes on, which is really driven by the virus itself. But just in the end, it raises a lot of questions. The lending of this money that's not getting repaid and banks tolerating it. Who in the end is going to absorb these losses? What kind of effect is it going to have on the local and broader economy? It's going to affect asset prices, commodity prices. It's going to contribute to the GDP growth rate that that um, everyone is expecting China to take a big hit on, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the take-home message is that the epidemic has brought back to the forefront concerns about China's debt problem, which it, for years had already been concerning. And this has really brought it back into the front of the conversation. And unfortunately, it, this is just one among a dozen problems that China's economy has at this point. And we'll, we'll have to wait and see, but it's a bad scenario. And I don't envy policymakers who are having to try to deal with it. Well, Tanner, thanks again. You are back to bringing us bad news, which is a sign of your own health, I suppose. So we'll check back in with you in the next week, and uh, fingers crossed that we see the virus begin to abate during that time. Okay. Thanks, Kaiser. 
Thank you, Tanner. And stay healthy, man. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wufei for the music. Be sure to check out the China in Africa podcast by Eric Olander and Kobus van Staden, the latest member of the Seneca Network. And be sure to follow the news from China every day at SupChina. Subscribe to our newsletter at subchina.com. Take care. <laughs>